Okay. All right, Ellen, nice to be with you. So how about we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself, such as your background and how you came to work on occupational health issues. I don't know whether you know that I was a math major in college. No. As an undergrad. <laughs> yes, University of Michigan. I realized some point, oh, I taught, and I taught high school math for a little while. I um, started taking some courses again at university and realized I was interested in, in statistics. And so I applied to um, graduate school in biostatistics. I got into a biostatistics master's program at Harvard. So I started doing that, matriculating, and found that it was kind of dry. <laughs> and I, I liked it, but I, but I realized pretty soon after I started public health school, having no interest in public health at all, I didn't even know what public health was, but I was interested in statistics and biostatistics was where the field was sort of moving at the time. That's okay. the only reason I ended up in a public health school. <laughs> and I, though, thought that the statistics was a little dry, and I met some people who were in doing environmental and occupational health, and they were a lot more plugged into the real world and had real-life problems that they were interested in, and a lot of them were sort of politically motivated students. And so I thought, wow, I think I'd want to be doing, I want to be doing what those guys are doing. And I wondered if there was a way that I could combine the two, statistics okay. and environmental occupational health. And so I went to talk to the head of that program, the occupational health program. So it, and, and, and they said, are you kidding me? There is such a, such a strong potential connection um, and such a need for people who know some biostatistics in the field of occupational health that they would basically support my graduate education even if I didn't sort of double major, even if I stayed in statistics. But I was so interested in, in, in blending them that I ended up doing a joint PhD. Okay. And um, so I... Wait, you're PhD squared? Uh, PhD squared. I don't have two of them. <laughs> I had to write one, I had to take two sets of qualifying exams, but only one thesis. Okay. And. Um, and so I ended up studying Vermont granite workers exposed to silica dust, and it was a study of longitudinal lung function. That was my thesis. And so that was how I got to occupational health. It was really sort of by accident. Wow, um, that's cool. When I graduated with my degree, I was going to go work in a public health department, uh, Department of Massachusetts, Department of Public Health in Massachusetts. But then I ended up getting one of these K awards, which is a, a research grant, and so I decided to go back to the university and stay and sort of have an academic career in occupational epidemiology, basically. Uh, and that's what I've been doing ever since. What are some of the important topics within occupational health that you think need more attention or focus? That's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> I think basically the whole field needs more attention. Um, I think basically environmental health has has um, attracted a lot of this, a lot of the energy that used to be going towards studying occupational exposures, and that now people are much more interested. Students are more interested. Um, NIH is more interested in supporting research in environmental health um, than in occupational health, and I think that itself is a shame and that there needs to be and would be helpful if there were more support for occupational health. I think there's a lot of dangerous exposures that people have at work that are not um, 
sufficiently attended to and controlled, and um, it's partly a matter of you know decline in manufacturing is part of the explanation. Decline in labor unions, I think, is another part of the explanation for why occupational health has become less well supported. Um, and um, I don't know whether that's whether that's can change, but I do think that as if if labor unions have a resurgence, which I think there's some reason to hope that they may, then I think people will pay more attention to workers and the working conditions in the United States, which are which are better certainly than they used to be and better than most other parts of the world, um, but but not but not good. I mean, there's still plenty of dangerous work. Do you think it's ironic that we can hear uh, workers in the background destroying this neighboring building? <laughs> destroying this neighboring building. Yes, we have a big construction site right outside our office building here on Berkeley Way West. So yeah. are, there, are there any interesting stories you can tell us about working with industry? I assume it mm-hmm. can be difficult at times because they don't want to be seen as an entity that may be causing harm. Yeah, absolutely true, true. So I would say there are... Two examples I can give of that of that very of that situation. One is um, there's a a large cohort study of aluminum manufacturing workers um, that uh, we had access to for many many for decades actually. Um, we've been studying health effects of exposure to aluminum dust and other um, health hazards in that industry, and and. About three years ago, um, the management had changed hands, and originally we were given access to the data, but the new management was, was very not happy with the fact that these data were in the hands of researchers and sort of out of their control, and they challenged the ownership of the data. Uh, it was a PI was at Stanford. Anyway, we, we, they won. They won in the sense that Stanford legal department at Stanford was so freaked out about a lawsuit that this aluminum company was going to sue Stanford on basis of you know ownership of this data set that they basically just cut us off completely. So we were like two years into a five-year NIH grant when we com- completely lost access to the data. And so it's now been, I don't know, it's been two years that um, Stanford computer scientists have been working to de-identify the data uh, to a higher degree, um, and this, and they they say that when that process is complete, we'll be given access again to the data, but at a at a higher level of de-identification, so that it won't be possible for anybody to know who who was in that study or you know individuals who were in that study. Um, so we're still waiting. It's been it's been a couple of years now that they've been working on the data at Stanford to make wow. it available to us again, but that's an example of how, t- yeah, how contested these occupational studies can be, because you're right, there's a lot at stake, mm-hmm. um, and companies are worried about us, you know, investigators finding new, new health hazards, mm. right, that are going to be trouble for them. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the most extreme example. And you said you had two examples. Yeah. The other example is more of a happy story. The other example was this, was the study that I've been working on for decades of um, GM UAW auto workers. That study was actually a joint labor management funded study back in the mid-80s when I was still a postdoc. But so the, the, the company and the union together funded um, the initial 
uh, cohort, you know, cohort study that set up that work, and we've been then following those auto workers for decades, looking for cancer, cancer in relation to exposure to metalworking fluids. So that's that is an it was an unusual um, study in that it was a labor management joint funded. Hmm. And so we didn't really run into the sort of problems that we ran into with the aluminum co study, where it was, you know, management had, one management team had sort of turned it over to us, and then a new management team came in and didn't like that. So the GM UAW study, that, that has successfully gone on for a long time. Are there any studies that you've conducted recently that you would like to talk about or anything exciting happening in your research? So many exciting things it's hard to know which one to talk about. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that we've been working on lately, well I could actually talk about the diesel study. I guess the diesel exhaust um, study which we're now working on together with some investigators at National Cancer Institute. And again this was a this is now a NIOSH funded study initially. And do the students know what NIOSH is? NIOSH, National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health? Yeah, now they do. Now they do. It's the <laughs> research organization behind OSHA. Uh, and and um, they funded a study uh, to look at diesel health effects of diesel exhaust, in particular look at lung cancer. Um, now, you all know diesel exhaust is a general environmental hazard as well as an occupational hazard. But the but the amount of exposure that workers are exposed to of diesel is like an order of magnitude, if not two orders of magnitude, greater than what's in you wow. know than what people yeah. would be exposed to in the general environment. So that's why this study was an important one because um, you have a you have a group of of miners in this case underground miners exposed to diesel powered uh, machinery underground. And so you have a captive population with very high exposure, exposed for decades, right? Workers, you know, these miners keep their jobs a long time. We have very good exposure information and good ways of tracking lung cancer. And so we have been studying to see whether we can see the relationship between diesel exhaust and lung cancer in this population, and sure enough, you can. Um, and so there, that work's been been pretty gratifying. We also have been looking at non-malignant respiratory disease in okay. relation to diesel exhaust in that population. Um, and it's been a little more difficult to tease out that relationship um, in the data, but we think we have done it now. <laughs> and um, so that work is you know, being written up now. Um, I'm going to go a little off script here, but I'm curious if you could talk a little bit. My understanding is you're kind of well known for looking at healthy worker effect. Can you talk a, bit, a little bit about what that is and yes, how I can. you deal with it? Yes, I can, and I would like to. See, I deliberately didn't talk about it up to this point because <laughs> I feel like that's all I ever talk about. <laughs> so I should try to talk about some other things. <laughs> but, really, <laughs> but really, it's what I was interested in from the very get-go, from when I first started studying the Vermont granite workers um, way back as a graduate student because... If you, if you look at a cohort of workers and you look to see whether people, the workers with more exposures have worse health outcomes, what you'll see is, surprisingly, they actually have better health than, the, than their co-workers who are exposed to less exposure. So let me say that again. So you might expect that the granite workers who were exposed to more silica dust would have worse lung function, but in fact, 
the granite workers who have been working the longest, exposed the most, have the best lung function of anybody in, in, in their cohort. Now, why is that? That's because if you, are, if you are more sensitive to the dust, you don't hang around, right? So the people who end up keeping their jobs, staying longest at work, exposed to high levels of, in this case, silica, end up, are, are, are their healthiest kinds of people, right? People vary in terms of how susceptible they are to vary to all sorts of health, health hazards. And um, you, if you study, I've been doing this now for long enough to be convinced that when you look at any group of workers, the ones who are still around, still being exposed at the highest, longest amounts, will have the best health. And so you've got a very counterintuitive finding right on your hands that we have to work hard to try to understand and and disentangle so that we don't get misled into thinking that there's that silica is not a problem for example so um, and this is true with the auto workers and this is true in the aluminum manufacturing workers and it's true in the miners exposed to diesel hmm. that the most exposed are are are, are the healthiest and so this is a self-selection it's what we call selection bias in epidemiology, um, and it is real and, and, and true. So we have to figure out ways to um, understand what's really going on, and that, and that basically amounts to looking carefully at who leaves. So you have to keep track. You have to have employment records so that you can see not only who's still there now, but who used to be working there, who's no longer working there. And if you have that kind of longitudinal information on the health outcomes of workers over time, you can document that it's the workers who are the least healthy who, who leave. Um, and so that allows you to make the case that it's not really that um, silica is protective of your health. <laughs> it's that right. it's it's that there is, are people who are less susceptible to these adverse effects and they're the ones who stay around. Wow, that sounds so complicated but also interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, very cool. So any final thoughts to students who may be interested in pursuing yeah. occupational health research? Yeah, I guess what I would say is I've already emphasized how a lot of workers in the United States or, or, you know, or throughout the world are exposed to very bad working conditions and it would be helpful and useful to do studies of these workplaces to try to see you know, what, what the exposures look like and what the health of these workers look like and, and to invest energy in protecting workers. But I also have um, talked to you today about how it's difficult sometimes to see what's going on because of this healthy worker survivor problem that distorts the data that you can collect. So what I would say is it's very good, it's very, it would be useful for those of you who may be interested in, in occupational health to make sure that you have sufficient training in statistics um, and in epidemiology and in these quantitative methods because without sort of fairly sophisticated quantitative methods, it's impossible to disentangle um, this healthy worker problem and you will end up with counterintuitive results, which won't help anybody. Hmm. So I think that would be my advice. Cool. Okay. That was great. All right. I'll let you know what uh, if you get any yes. questions from the students. <laughs> All right. Are anybody signing up?